Very often we talk about Jesus as being a friend of sinners. We see all through his ministry that Jesus not only spent his time around those who were poor and those who were sick, but also those who were very publicly sinful, tax collectors and prostitutes, meeting with them where they were, even going into their houses to the point where he had a reputation that was scandalous because of the people that he would interact with. But we also see times in Scripture where Jesus does the exact same thing for perhaps an even more unlikely group of people. And one of those instances comes up in Luke chapter 7, as a Pharisee named Simon invites Jesus to come into his house for dinner. And so basically, this is Jesus being invited into enemy territory. We know even early on in the ministry of Christ, he had already earned the distaste of the Pharisees, to say it lightly. They didn't like what he said, they didn't like what he did, they didn't like how he taught, and they were constantly trying to trap him. And yet now, when given this opportunity to come into this Pharisee's house for dinner, Jesus does exactly that. And he goes in and he reclines at his table with this man like a friend. Now, during these type of dinner parties, the house would often be open and people could just come in and out as they would please. And during this dinner party, a woman comes in who Luke describes as a woman who was a sinner. And so more than likely what we're talking about here is a woman who was a known prostitute or someone who was at least an adulterous woman. And she walks into this party and she sees Jesus and she begins to weep. And she falls on the floor at his feet and she cries. And as her tears hit his feet, She wipes them with her hair and washes Jesus' feet with her tears and with her hair. And she anoints him with a jar of alabaster oil. And as he's doing that, Simon the Pharisee scoffs. And he sits back and he says to himself, if if he really was a prophet, he would know what kind of woman this is. And if he knew what kind of woman this is, he certainly wouldn't allow her to touch him. He wouldn't allow this woman into his presence, and so he must not be quite the prophet everybody thinks he is. But then, (laughs) Jesus proves him wrong. And as Simon is saying these things to himself, Luke says, Jesus looks at Simon, and I love this address. He says, Simon, I have something to say to you. And I imagine Simon knows this wasn't going to be good. But he says, okay, what is it? And Jesus says in a parable, A certain moneylender had two debtors. One owed 500 denarii and the other 50. When they could not pay, he canceled the debt of both. Now which of them will love him more? Simon answered, The one, I suppose, for whom he canceled the larger debt. And he said to him, You have judged rightly. Then turning toward the woman, he said to Simon, Do you see this woman? I entered her house, entered your house, and you gave me no water for my feet, but she has wet my feet with her tears and wiped them with her hair. You gave me no kiss, but from the time I came in, she's not ceased to kiss my feet. You did not anoint my head with oil, but she has anointed my feet with ointment. Therefore, I tell you, her sins, which are many, are forgiven, for she loved much. But he who is forgiven little loves little. Then he said to her, your sins are forgiven. And those who were at the table with him began to say among themselves, who is this who even forgives sins? And then Jesus looks at the woman one more time, and this is what he says. 
Your faith has saved you. Go in peace. And so here you have two people, two very different people, at the same dinner party in the presence of the same Savior, in the presence of Jesus. But they had two vastly different responses. For Simon the Pharisee, he thought he had everything together. And so when Jesus came in, he was welcoming an equal in his opinion. And so he had no need to throw any special attention towards Jesus because he really didn't care about Jesus and his stature and really didn't believe Jesus was who he claimed to be. But then you have this woman who comes in who knows not only who Jesus is, but she knows who she is. And she falls on her face before him. Two people, one Savior, two very different reactions. As we've been talking about the kingdom of God, one of the things that has become clear is that while entrance into the kingdom is free, that anyone who trusts in Christ becomes a part of the kingdom of God, once we belong to Jesus, once we're saved by his grace, there's an expectation that we're going to do something about that. And last week we looked at the foundations of building a life that honors and glorifies Jesus in the way that we think, in the way that we act, even in the way that we give to those around us. But there's another part of our mission. There's another part of our responsibility as Christians. And that's to be messengers of the kingdom. To go out and to tell other people about Jesus and about what he's done and to share what we call the gospel. And so today we're going to look at Luke chapter 8, verses 4 through 15, and we're going to see Jesus give us a window into the trials and the triumphs of sharing the gospel, because it comes equipped with both. Sometimes it feels good and successful, and sometimes it feels clunky and awkward, and we can feel like failures as we do it. And Jesus is going to help us to see not only what we should expect, but also to be better prepared to go out and do it. Because the reality is very few of us are natural evangelists. Very few of us have the innate gift to go and just talk with people about the gospel easily. I know I certainly don't. It's not something that I do well. And so we're going to see Jesus give us a few scenarios for how that gospel message can be received to hopefully give us the preparedness we need, but also to give us the motivation to go out and to do what we're called to do as messengers of the kingdom of God. And so from the Gospel of Luke chapter 8, starting in verse 4, Jesus says this. There was a great crowd of people gathered around. People from town after town came to see him. And he said in a parable, a sower went out to sow his seed. And as he sowed, some fell along the path and was trampled underfoot. And the birds of the air devoured it. And some fell on the rock as it grew up, and it withered away because it had no moisture. And some fell among thorns, and the thorns grew up with it and choked it. And some fell into good soil, and grew and yielded a hundredfold. And as he said these things, he called out, He who has ears, let him hear. And when the disciples asked him what this parable meant, he said, To you it has been given to know the secrets of the kingdom of God, but for others they are in parables, so that seeing they may not see, and hearing they may not understand. Now the parable is this. The seed is the word of God. The ones along the path are those who have heard. Then the devil comes and takes away the word from their hearts, so that they may not believe and be saved. 
And the ones on the rock are those who, when they hear the word, receive it with joy, but these have no root. They believe for a while, and in a time of testing, fall away. And as for what fell among thorns, they are those who hear. But as they go on their way, they are choked by the cares and riches and pleasures of life, and their fruit does not mature. As for that in the good soil, they are those who, hearing the word, hold it fast and in honest and good heart, and bear fruit with patience. May God add his blessing and his favor to the reading of his word. Thanks be to God for his word. Father, as always, we thank you for your word. We thank you for Jesus and the stories and the parables that he gives and the teachings that he gave us to prepare us to do life in the kingdom. But God, you know that for whatever reason, for most of us sharing our faith is not only not a gift, but something that we find quite difficult. And one of those things that makes it a difficult thing to do is the the reality of knowing that we may go and share our faith with someone and they may not respond the way that we would hope. And so, Father, as we look at this parable, as Jesus tells us how the Word of God, how the message of the kingdom is received by a variety of different people, we just pray that you would help this to give us some clarity, that we would know what to expect as we go out to share your good news, but also, God, that this would motivate us. Because this is, first and foremost, the work that you've called us to do, and that's reason enough for us to go out and share our faith. But also, God, we know that you can use us to draw someone into salvation. And there is no better thing in this world that we could be a part of. So God, give us a passion and a desire to go out and to be messengers of your kingdom. And we ask all these things in the precious name of Jesus. Amen. So Jesus does a really great job of explaining all this and breaking it down. And so why reinvent the wheel? We're just going to go and use Jesus' outline directly. And walk through each of these things that he talks about and see what it teaches us about how we can share our faith and how we need to be prepared to see someone respond one way or the other. And the first thing Jesus explains is the meaning of the seed. And it's in verse 11. He says, now the parable is this. The seed here is the word of God. Now imagine there's a farmer. I mean, you don't have to imagine there's a farmer. There actually are farmers, and there are people that'll do that. But let's imagine that there's a farmer that we know, and maybe you know a farmer. It doesn't have to be that farmer in particular. So what I'm saying here is let's imagine an imaginary farmer. Even though farmers are real things that really exist, we're going to have a pretend one today. We'll call him Ted. Farmer Ted is a very diligent farmer. I think that's a good, strong—maybe we'll call him Theodore. Farmer Theodore is a very strong and passionate farmer. He's very good at what he does. And so it's time for Farmer Theodore to start planting everything that he needs. And so he goes out and he works the field. He makes sure that the the ground is fertile and the ground is ready to have these these plants grow out of it so the harvest can come through. He works really hard to make sure all of the nutrients are in the soil, that it's all tilled up and ready to go. He makes sure to water his field and that his farm is very carefully taken care of. He makes sure to put all of the fertilizer through the entire season so everything is primed and ready to go. But then he notices as weeks go on that when the plants should start to bud, nothing's happening. 
you know, Theodore knows, farmer Theodore knows, excuse me, I'd like to be very proper when I address such a man of high esteem. Farmer Theodore knows that sometimes the weather changes and maybe the seasons change or maybe he lives in Georgia and it's never one season for more than two days at a time. And so he knows that there could be a lot of events that take place that are causing his crops to, to not grow like they should. But more time goes on and more time goes on and it should be time when he is harvesting food and nothing's happened. And he's just puzzled and perplexed and he he walks into his barn and he's stressed out and he looks up and he thinks, huh. And there on a shelf is all of the seed that he would normally plant that he just forgot to bring and put out and grow. And so obviously if there's no seed, (laughs) there's no plant. Now, a very diligent farmer would obviously make sure that there were seeds. And any farmer, I'm not a farmer by any stretch of the imagination, and I have a pretty good idea that in order to grow crops, you need seed. And so Jesus starts by talking about the most important part of this equation. The most important thing that happens when we go out to share our faith, and he says that the seed is planted, that's the word of God. In the life of church... We can put together all of the programs that we want. We can have great children's ministries. We can have great outreach programs. We can go out and do incredible things in all kinds of neighborhoods. We can go to other states and other countries. We can put all of these kind of things into place. We can have great music and really inspiring teaching and all these things that happen that can make church look like church and accomplish absolutely nothing if it's missing the word of God. We would be like farmers toiling the ground and making sure that everything is in place but forgetting the most important ingredient and then being perplexed when nothing grows. And so when it comes to being messengers of the kingdom, before we start spreading the message, we better know it. We better be people who are dedicated to the word of God who are dedicated to the gospel, preaching the gospel to ourselves every day, reading God's word and understanding who God is and what Jesus has done for us in his death and resurrection and filling our hearts and minds with the knowledge that comes from Scripture. But because we are so nervous sometimes about what it means to share our faith, we can be tempted to spend all of our time learning how to communicate better. Or learning how to put programs in in place in order to bring people in, to draw people. But without the seed, without God's word, none of it means anything. Because it's not our responsibility to simply invite people to church. It's not our job to simply be counselors or to give life advice, even though those are important things and things that we're called to do as we do life together and relationally love one another and love our community. But our ultimate goal is to be people of the Great Commission. To give words of life that come from the King of Heaven. And the only way that we can do that is by immersing ourselves in Scripture and allowing God's Word through the Holy Spirit to teach us the truth of the Gospel so that we can go out and share it. And so before we go and share our faith, we better have the seed. We better have the message of truth that comes from the Bible. And then Jesus starts talking about the seed as it's spread. And he gives us several places that the seed begins to fall. And the first bit of seed, he said, falls on a pathway. And in these old farms, in these old harvesting crop areas, they would have one row where they would plow up the soil. 
And so they would run the plow down this one line so that this strip of land would be good and fertile and ready for seed to go in. And then beside it, there would be a hard pathway so that the workers could walk up and down the pathway to be able to harvest the crops and care for the seeds and all the things that farmers do. And so that pathway would be very hard and very compact. You'd have humans and animals walking on it over and over again. The soil wouldn't be well cared for, so it would dry out. And Jesus said what happens with this first bit of seed is it's thrown out and it starts to land on the pathway. And because the pathway is hard-packed, it can't get in and get the nutrients that it needs. And people begin to walk up and down the pathway, and they step on the seed, and they break it, and they crush it, and then it's left exposed so the birds are able to come and to snatch the seed away. In this part, the seed is exposed, and it lands, but it never takes root. And if I were to put opinion into this, I would say that this is maybe the most disheartening scenario that Jesus lays out. Because as the ones on the path are those who have heard, then the devil comes and takes away the word from their hearts so they may not believe and be saved. These are the times that we go out and we share our faith. You go out and you talk about Jesus or maybe invite someone to church or share something that God has done in your life and you're excited and you're ready and you talk about Jesus with someone and in return you're met with apathy. Maybe somebody who just doesn't care or doesn't want to hear what you say or maybe they're dismissive and maybe not rude but even just the the, the hearing of that's nice for you but that's not really for me can be really overwhelming and hard to hear. These are the times of the missed opportunities. These are the times when you share your faith and you're met with outright rejection or anger or people who are hostile to the gospel. These are the times when you put the message out in front of someone and it's immediately rejected with no hope or no feeling of accomplishment at all. And so what tends to happen is we can become really overwhelmed by that feeling. I think it helps when we have this glimmer of hope. When you go to someone, you talk about something and they receive it well, or you invite them to church and they say, you know what, maybe I will come next week or the next week. Or you talk to them about something that you read in the Bible and they say, oh, that's really nice. I've never heard it that way before. That's really inspiring. And I really like to hear that. And it gives this little glimmer of hope that maybe something is happening here. And so that can give us the motivation to keep moving forward. But when we're immediately met with rejection, it can shut us down completely. And what's even worse is this is probably the most common response to the gospel when we talk to people. Maybe not hostile rejection, but certainly apathy or dismissal. This outright rejection is usually the thing that happens most commonly when we share our faith with other people. And so what do we tend to do? It can make us shut down. And just say, you know what, if that's how people are going to be, if that's how people are going to talk, if they're not going to connect with us, if they're not going to hear anything about it, then I'm just not going to worry about it. Or we can start to be very self-conscious about it and say, well, maybe I'm just not good at it. Maybe I don't have a giftedness for this. Or maybe I just don't need to be pushing anything that I believe or saying anything that I believe to other people. So maybe I'll just keep it to myself. Or maybe we get really savvy and we start to say, you know what, I'm going to hedge my bets a little bit here. I'm going to focus on the people that look like they're ready to hear the gospel. 
And I'm going to focus in on those people who they just look like they are going to respond well, so I don't have to be met with rejection. But remember, the kingdom of God, as we've seen over and over again, is for all people. There's not a type. There's no way to detect what somebody will or won't do in response to the gospel. And we certainly don't get to decide what appears to be a lost cause. Think about the two people that Jesus is interacting here with in Luke chapter 7. From the outside appearance, one of them looks very likely to enter into the kingdom of God. The other looks very unlikely. Simon the Pharisee looks like the prototypical person who would hear truth and hear the good news about Jesus and he would respond accordingly because he's a man of faith and a man of morals and a man of high standing. But then you have this woman who wouldn't even be welcomed in most people's houses. She's the one who passionately follows Christ and has her sins forgiven. And so we can't make those decisions. We don't get to be participating in some sort of spiritual triage saying you look like you'll respond to the gospel and you don't. It's our responsibility to go out and to share our faith without any sort of discrimination or any sort of circumstantial things that might play into that and say, God, when you give me an opportunity, I'm going to share my faith. Even if that means being met with outright rejection, we go out and we share our faith anyway. And as we do, we remember that we don't save anyone, that salvation belongs to the Lord. And so we go out and we plant our seed. And even when it falls on what appears to be a pathway where nothing is happening, we pray and we work, and we do what we're called to do anyway, and then trust the results in the hands of the God who can do all things. Then Jesus said that there's some seed that lands on the rocks. And as we've been talking about the kingdom of God, we've seen the foundations of what it means to live life in the kingdom. And we saw last week Jesus give the parable about the two people who built their houses in preparation for a flood. And the one house that was built on the rock stood, and the one that was built on the sand did not. And Jesus said the difference between those two houses are the ones who built the house on the rock are like people who hear the word of God and then go out and do the word of God. But the house built on sand is like the people who hear the word of God and then do nothing. And we've seen that the evidence of true faith is action. That when we are saved by the grace and mercy of God, it's going to inspire us to go out and to do something about it. And that doesn't mean we're perfect. It doesn't mean we don't mess up. It doesn't mean that that kind of growth is fast. But it does mean that we are going to continue on taking the steps to deepen our faith, to do the good works that Christ has called us to do, to be people of action, but also people of perseverance. And all through the New Testament, we see one of those identifiers about true salvation is that it's people who persevere to the end. Jesus said, of those who come, I'm not going to lose one of you. Paul says that I'm confident that he who began a good work in you will complete it on the day of Jesus. And so that evidence of genuine salvation in our lives is that it's a lifelong endeavor and will be with us even at the end. But one of the things that you can see a lot in the life of church, maybe you've seen this personally in a firsthand way, but when somebody has a profound religious experience, 
Or maybe when somebody comes to church for the first time ever, or the first time in a long time, or maybe here's a Bible verse, or somebody shares their faith with them, and it seems to click in an awesome way, and they have this emotional reaction to it, that can be filled with a lot of joy, and a lot of passion, and a lot of excitement. And so a lot of times, people, when they have these religious experiences, jump into those things head first. But as I'm sure most of you know, Christianity is not a fix-all and it's not a cure-all. And you can find that out pretty quickly. If you come to church just to fix your problems, if you try to come to Christianity just to have your life turned around and to have yourself become a better person or to feel better about what you do or to, to try to have some sort of moral improvement in your life, then you'll find out very quickly that that's not the purpose of following Christ. And that just because you follow Christ doesn't mean that you won't have bad times, that you won't have difficult circumstances, that you won't deal with with sickness or pain, that you won't mess up, that you won't sin. But what tends to happen in these instances where it's simply a religious experience or a good day at church, what happens is when those things start to happen, when the circumstances of life start to get difficult, someone could look around and say, I guess this isn't working. I tried the Jesus thing, I tried the church thing, and my life is still not any better. I'm still struggling with these things, I'm still messing up, or life is still hard, or I'm not healed, or whatever thing we could put in there. And so they look at that and they say, I guess it just didn't work. And Jesus says in verse 13, that those who fall on the rock are those who, when they hear the word of God, receive it with joy. But these have no root. They believe for a while, and in a time of testing, fall away. Jesus says sometimes when you sow that seed, it's going to look like it took root. And you're going to see something that looks like faith spring up in someone's life, and it's going to be exciting. And that person may even get involved in church. They may be doing things. It might be a really just passionate time. But then you'll notice that as the circumstances begin to change, that because that rock keeps it from taking root, There's nothing there to hold it in place. And that flower, that fruit, that plant that one time sprouted up quickly now begins to fade and begins to wither. And it's heartbreaking. And if you haven't seen this happen around you yet, at some point you will. Maybe with friends, maybe with family, maybe with someone who comes and joins the church, you'll see someone passionate and excited and then one thing happens or a couple things happen or life starts to get really difficult and all of a sudden that faith begins to expose itself as not genuine faith but just religious excitement. And we get to watch the withering away process. And it can be very, very difficult to see that take place. What's even more difficult is there's really no way to eliminate this. This has been happening since the very beginning. In Hebrews chapter 6, we see that in this early church, there were people who were coming and they were excited about what the apostles were teaching. They were even taking communion and had been baptized, and yet they fell away because they found something else to occupy their time. Or they found something else that seemed to work a little bit better, and so that faith shot up like a rocket and then withered away. But while this will always be a part of church life and life of sharing our faith, this does show us the importance of genuine discipleship. That it's not just our responsibility, if you're a Christian, to go out and to tell people about Jesus. 
that we aren't simply here trying to sell a product, but we are inviting people into a kingdom. We're not peddling some sort of quick fix or religious cure, but we're calling people to a new life. And so because of that, we aren't here just to throw out the seed and then if it starts to grow up, walk away. But it's our responsibility to nurture and to care for people as they grow in their faith while people are doing the same thing for us. That's the role and the responsibility of the church to not simply be a place where people hear the gospel and move on, but a place where people hear the gospel week after week and not only hear it, but are immersed with it in the way that people live around them, in the way that they're encouraged, in the way that they're welcomed, in the way that they're loved, in the way that they're trained up in the gospel. And so we have to be people willing to put in the work of discipleship of walking side by side with people as they grow in their faith, living out our faith and practicing our faith in front of others and being in it for the long term. Establishing relationships. Not just throwing a gospel track at someone or leaving it behind somewhere and walking away and hoping that somebody else deals with the repercussions of that, but being willing to love our neighbor as ourselves and to help them grow in the gospel. But even with all of that, there will be times that the seed falls on the rocks and there will be people who hear the gospel, get excited about it for a season, and then fall away. Then Jesus talks about some seed that falls in the midst of thorns. If you've ever taken a walk in the woods, you'll be aware that thorns are not pleasant things. I'm sure they have some sort of purpose in nature. I'm sure that there's some reason that God chose to create them, much like I suppose there has to be some reason for mosquitoes. I don't understand the purpose of either of those things other than maybe some sort of horrible discipleship. I don't know. Maybe they're created for sermon illustrations just like today so that we can know the difficulty and the pain that comes with thorns. And if you go for a walk in the woods and you find yourself among the thorns, it's hard to believe they're not sentient. Because the more I struggle with thorns, the more they seem to wrap themselves around me. And before I know it, I'm entangled in thorns and there's no way to get out and I just feel like a lost cause. I want to fall in a hole and be consumed by the thorns. But then it's prickly and so I don't want to do that. So eventually you get out, but they're very difficult things to wrestle with. And when you look at media and movies and children's stories, these, this thorny image is one that's made to conjure up horrible feelings inside of us. When you think about children's storybooks, when children wander too far into the woods, the illustrations get darker and they get thornier. And so when Jesus starts talking about thorns, we can probably make some guesstimations as to what we think that would be. When we see Jesus in verse 7 say that some fell among thorns and the thorns grew up with it and choked it, we can start to say, oh, I know what that stuff is. Those are the really bad things in life. The thorns Jesus is talking about here must be the big, deep, dark sins that consume people. Substance abuse and sexual sins and the things that are enslaving and captivating that smother us and grab us and pull us down and things that we can't get out of. And we say that must be what Jesus is talking about here when he's talking about thorns. But not exactly. While those things certainly have the ability to, to grab the gospel in our lives, this is what Jesus says is happening here. He says, As for what fell among the thorns, in verse 14, they are those who hear. But as they go on their way, they are choked by the cares and riches 
and pleasures of life, and their fruit does not mature. You see, very often, the most dangerous threat to the gospel are not the things that we would expect. It's often not the darkest sins that choke out the gospel in people's lives, but it's far more often the shiniest toys. The things that can cause distractions and take away our understanding of the need for the gospel. Again, think about Simon the Pharisee and this sinful woman that comes into his house. Simon the Pharisee had everything that he needed and everything that he wanted. He was the guy that had it all together. He followed the rules. He lived the right life. He knew all of the scriptures. He followed the law inside and out. He even followed the oral law. He was the kind of guy that when he walked down the street, someone would look at him and say, that is a man of God. And so because of that, he didn't see the need to trust in Christ. He was distracted by his own status in life. But while this woman who was immersed in all of this sin, who was a known sinner to the world, even to a point where this Pharisee looked at her and said, if that were me, she wouldn't be touching me. That woman recognized her need for the gospel. That woman recognized her need for Christ. The most dangerous threat to the gospel that we will interact with as we share our faith is the fact that people can forget that they need it. That if life is going well and things are going well, that it can be very easy to be distracted and say, you know what, I don't really need religion. I don't really think I need church right now. In fact, usually, in my experience with a lot of people that I've invited to church, people that tend to come to church a lot of times say, you know what, I do need to come to church. I've got some stuff going on, you know, I've, I've been out for a while and I do need to come to church. I need, I need church right now in my life. But when life goes well, when the shiny toys are very obvious, it can be difficult to see that need. And so it's our responsibility as messengers of the kingdom to always make sure that we present the gospel as both necessary and ultimate. That we don't beat around the bush with the need for the gospel, with the truth that all of us have sinned and fallen short of the glory of God. That every single one of us need Christ. As Drew proclaims every week before our confession of sin, that all of us have fallen short of the glory of God. All of us need His grace and mercy. All of us are sinners no matter what that level of sin may be. And that none of us can save ourselves, but Jesus has done everything that we need to have salvation no matter who we are. And that the gospel isn't a fix for your life, but it is a change of who you are and a gift for all of eternity. But even more than just showing the gospel as a necessity, it's important that we make it very clear that the gospel is ultimate. That there is nothing better than Jesus. That there is nothing more profound and more amazing than the fact that the God of the universe loved the world so much that he gave his one and only son to die and through his resurrection has given us the ability to not only be changed from the inside out, but to have this promise and this inheritance that will last for all of eternity that will make even the best things in the world seem like specks of dust by comparison. But what's troubling about this is that it reminds us that our presentation of the gospel reflects what we believe about the gospel. And if we don't believe the gospel to be necessary, 
then it's going to be very hard to convince someone that the gospel is necessary. If we don't believe that the gospel is ultimate, that it is better than anything else that the world has to offer, if we live our lives trusting in all the things around us more than we trust in Jesus, it's going to be impossible to convince someone else that the gospel is ultimate. And so as we go out and we share our faith, we need to believe the way that we want others to believe. And so we have to ask ourselves the question, when I share the gospel, does it make the gospel shine? Do I show the beauty of the gospel in the way that I talk about it? Or am I so disassociated from it or disinterested in it that my communication of what the gospel really is is just some pale imitation of what it truly is in my life. Because sometimes the seed falls among thorns and the distractions of life can pull it away. And so we need to be so clear when we share our faith that the gospel is beautiful, the gospel is wonderful, and the gospel is necessary. And then Jesus says in verse 8, that some fell into good soil and grew and yielded a hundredfold. And finally, we have success, right? Or at least what we would consider success. Finally, the seed falls in the good soil and it grows. But not only does it grow, but Jesus says it grows and that it increases and multiplies a hundredfold. This is the thrill now of seeing someone trust in the gospel because of something that we have done. On a very small scale here, you know that I'm very passionate about wanting to grow my own berries, and I'm seeing some success of that now. We planted some blueberry bushes last year, and there are some blueberries growing, and I'm so excited. I can't wait to eat that first blueberry. I hope it's a big one, just a nice, juicy, wonderful blueberry. I can't wait to eat that one because I like blueberries, but I'm going to love the blueberry off my bush, even if it tastes terrible. It's just going to be so much sweeter because I know I was there when it went in the ground. And I saw that tree when there was no berries on it, and now it has berries. But compared to what we're talking about here, the agricultural reference doesn't even seem to compare. Because when we share our faith with someone, whether it's someone that's a stranger, someone that we've known for a little while, or someone that we've known for a long time, that we've been praying that God would save them, when we are enabled to see God use our words and our lives and our actions to bring someone to salvation. There is nothing more amazing than that. And this is what it looks like. In verse 15, Jesus says, For those in the good soil, they are those who, hearing the word of God, hold it fast in an honest and good heart and bear fruit with patience. And Jesus, what you're, what you're seeing happen in their lives when that takes place is you're not just seeing some sort of converts. You're not just seeing someone become a church member or some sort of moral better person. But we're seeing people grow in their faith. We're seeing disciples made. We're seeing members of the kingdom. We're seeing people become sons and daughters of God. And this kind of growth, again, can't end with the preliminary work of planting seeds. But it's so important that, again, we come alongside people when they hear the gospel, trust in the gospel, and go through the waters of baptism, and we look at them and we say, listen, you belong to us now, and we belong to you. 
And we're here for you to help you grow in your faith and to help you see the good news of the gospel grow in your life and to bear fruit. We want to help you find the spiritual giftedness that God has given you and help you to serve and to plug in. And when you're struggling, we're going to be here struggling with you. And when you're succeeding, we're going to be here succeeding with you. You belong to us, your family now. And so this stresses to us the importance of several things in the life of the church, in the life of Christian community. First and foremost, we have to be dedicated to friendship. That this has to be a lot more than we just go to the same church or we happen to believe in the same things. But we are family now, brothers and sisters in Christ, and we want to to be together and eat together and do life together and experience all these things together. We have to be friends. And that kind of community shows something incredible to the world as people from all different backgrounds and all different places are able to come together under the heading of Jesus and be friends and love each other and care for each other. It also shows the importance, again, of discipleship, of not simply doing fun things together and fellowshipping together and going and and having events in our homes and eating together, but being intentional with some of those times to spend time talking about God's Word, to spend time in Bible study, to spend time holding one another accountable to doing the work of Christ, to serving in the church and outside the church together, to make sure that our relationships are intentional and focused on constantly sharpening one another with the gospel, stirring one another up to good works. And it also shows the importance of church membership because Church, in a local sense, is what God has given us to grow in our faith, to grow in our knowledge of Christ, to grow in our relationships with one another, and to go out and serve together. And we take church membership very seriously here at Redeeming Grace because it unites us together. And every year, even though we're a little late on that because Easter came a little bit early, we have a season of covenant renewal where anybody who's joined the church, we look over our covenant membership responsibilities and we sign for another 12 months saying I am going to be committed to the work of Redeeming Grace Community Church for this next year. I'm going to grow in my faith. I'm going to grow in my relationships with others and then I'm going to go out and love and serve because the church is the vessel through which we are sent out into mission. And so we have to have this faithful dedication to friendship and discipleship and membership. And so that way, in the life of those people who respond to the gospel, that good news will be cultivated. It will grow. They will experience the love and mercy of Christ. But they will also know their spiritual gifts and be able to go out and to love and serve so that they can do what we have done, sharing their faith and seeing that fruit multiplied a hundredfold. And so when we put all this together What did we learn? What are some of these basic principles, these really practical things about sharing our faith? The first thing we have to see here is that we need to do it. This is not a suggestion, that this is not something for people who are particularly gifted with it. This isn't like any other ministry inside the church where people are differently equipped so those people fall into those places and serve. This is something that is the calling and the responsibility to anyone who wears the name of Christ, that it is our responsibility to go out and to tell people about Jesus. And that should be something that if we're pouring enough scripture into our lives, and if we are really seeing the beauty of the gospel every day, that there should be something inside of us that motivates us to talk, because when we love something, we're going to talk about it. 
And one of the things that I've learned over the last few years, because I'm telling you, I'm really bad at this. I've told you before, I'm not good at one-on-one conversation sometimes, and I say weird things, and I make weird faces, and I don't know what to do with my hands, and I just do awkward things. And I think part of it was for a long time, I thought that it was this formal thing that had to be structured, and I had to go into a conversation with the intention of, and now I shall share my faith with you and impart on you the word of God. But it doesn't have to be that stoic. It doesn't have to be that programmed or that structured. We can talk about it like we talk about any of the other things that we love. And learning how to incorporate the language of Christ into our everyday conversation is a really important pursuit that we have. And we should ask that God would not only give us the opportunities to share our faith, but when those come up, that we would have the boldness to do it, even if we sound blubbering and strange until we get good at it, that he would give us the passion to go out there and do it. And when we do it, We can relax and just talk about it like the things that you love. I don't mind talking about my kids. I talk about them all the time. You know, I'll show you pictures. I'll show you a slideshow of pictures. I'll show you videos. I will show you all kinds of stuff about my kids because I love my kids. Man, I want to love Jesus even more than that. And if I love Jesus that much, it will eventually become natural just to talk about Jesus in the everyday parts of my life. You can also remember that it isn't about you. In the English Standard Version Study Bible, it points out, I think, a very important fact that the sower is the least important part of this parable. You are not that crucial to the product that you are either going to save somebody by yourself and by the words that you use, or you are going to somehow keep someone from being saved because you didn't do it the right way. This is all about the work of God, and so because of that, it takes all the pressure off. You don't need to feel arrogant about it when you bring someone to Christ and they experience the gospel, and you don't need to feel devastated by it and to take it personally when someone doesn't respond well because it's all about Jesus. And so that takes a little of the pressure off. We also see that we have the responsibility to plant seed wherever we go because fertile ground is found in very unexpected places. And so we cannot be guilty of looking at someone and making a predetermination that this is someone who will either receive the gospel or someone who will not because we just don't know. And so it's our responsibility to share Jesus with anyone and everyone that we can. I also want you to know that planting seed is hard work. This isn't just walking around sprinkling wildflowers and hoping they just fall wherever they go, but it requires that we get our hands dirty. It requires that sometimes we share our faith over and over again. It requires that sometimes we do get our feelings hurt, or sometimes we do have relationships that are strained, and sometimes we come home feeling exhausted and worn out because we're having to do the hard work of not just telling somebody about our faith, but showing them what it looks like and ministering to people who are in really difficult seasons of life that we have to bear some of that weight ourselves, planting seed is very hard work. And so please go out expecting that, that sometimes it's going to be difficult and that's okay. We also see that sometimes most of the seed won't survive. When we go out and share our faith more often than not, it's going to result in rejection of the gospel, or any of these other things that Jesus has laid out, it will result that way more often than it will result in someone trusting in the gospel, and that can be very difficult. But we also have to remember that sometimes it does take root. 
And sometimes that we are able to see God work salvation in the life of people. And so that's an incredible thing that we can celebrate. But it's also important to know that sometimes you will start the work and then years down the road, someone will finish it. And someone that you've prayed for, that you've shared your faith with, that you've spent an exhaustive part of your life with may never respond to the gospel when you're doing the work and then they may leave town and then a year later you find out that they're a deacon in their church because somebody else just said hey to them and it's going to feel a little frustrating. You're like, man, you could have just done that with me. That would have been nice, but it's still good. And we still get to have that incredible role and responsibility and part in the life of seeing someone come to Christ. And when someone does, that makes the work And the strain and the stress and even the heartbreak worth it. As we are reminded that we serve a God who saves and that he uses broken vessels like us to bring salvation into the lives of people. And so if you're here and you're a follower of Christ, then when we walk out those doors today, we are going out into a mission field and it is our calling and our responsibility to share the good news of the gospel everywhere we go.